I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. When Ty Sigley was growing up in Alexandria, Virginia, everything about his life was centered around his and the South's worship of Robert E. Lee, the man who led and lost the Southern Rebellion against the United States. In Robert E. Lee and Me, a Southerner's reckoning with the myth of the lost cause, Sigley, a retired Army Brigadier General and Professor Emeritus of History at West Point, writes about how he went from wanting to be the white Christian Southern gentleman he believed Lee to be, to becoming one of Lee's and the Confederacy's fiercest detractors. And Sigley wanted to be absolutely clear who won the war. This incredible conversation about the lost cause and its continued power in American history starts right now. Ty Sigley, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Oh, Jonathan, my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I found out about your book. Your book has been out for more than a year now, right? No, no, it came out the end of January of this year. Oh, the end of January this year, uh, because I got an email from Ron Chernow, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of biographies on Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, the latest one, Grant. And um, he sent me an email and he said, you must read, you must read Robert E. Lee and Me by Ty Sigley. You have to read it. Um, it is right up your alley. And I'm so glad he recommended it. And I'm so glad I read it because it truly is something I've been dying to read. And that is a white Southerner taking on race, racism, but most importantly, the myth of the lost cause. Um, and so how about we just start right at the beginning? Who were you when you were a, a young kid growing up in Virginia? Who did you want to model your life after? Jonathan, I, it's crazy to say it, but I wanted to be like Robert E. Lee. And I did. My first chapter book was about Robert E. Lee. Um, my dad taught at a school in Northern Virginia where the descendants of Robert E. Lee were. Uh, he was the ultimate Virginia gentleman, a, an educated Christian gentleman. And everything in my life in Alexandria led me to believe that he was that he was this great person. And in fact, you know, it, it's like that old movie uh, Spinal Tap, you know, on a scale of one to ten, I would have said Lee was an eleven. You know, and even though I was a good Episcopalian, went to church every Sunday, I was a head acolyte later in high school, I would have put Jesus in the four, five, six range. So it wasn't as though, it wasn't as though that I saw Lee as good. I, it was reverential. It was reverential because as you write, it was all around you. The reverence for Robert E. Lee manifested itself in myriad ways. Talk about some of those. Yeah, sure. I mean, there was uh, th there's there were streets named after Lee. There was uh, his boyhood home, which was a shrine. There was a Confederate monument on Prince Street in Alexandria. Uh, the at my at the school where my dad taught, there was a, a big uh, uh, marker where all the the Confederates who died in the war were. But of course, there were U.S. soldiers too, but they weren't listed. Um, Everything about it and the books, the 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 uh, the textbooks I had as a kid, uh, everything. In fact, um, I was happy in the sixth grade when we were finally uh, integrating schools in Alexandria. I was bused across town from my from the white elementary school, Douglas MacArthur, to the segregated black school. And what was the name of that segregated black school? Robert E. Lee Elementary School. 
as I was reading your book, the level of malevolence in terms of the naming and the, the creation of the myth, the nurturing of the myth, despite all the evidence to the, to the contrary, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So you, you write um, about this reverence and you talk about how in Alexandria, where you grew up, there was one history that you thought you knew and then come to find out that there was a whole other history of Alexandria that you then learned. And you go through in the book and you talk about all the places where you were, the history as celebrated by the community and then the history as it really, as it really is. Talk about, uh, start in Alexandria. What was the history that you grew up knowing and then how did you learn the truth about Alexandria's history? The analogy is we have this vine called kudzu. And if you've ever been in the South, it grows over everything. It, it covers everything. And the lost cause myth does that. And this lost cause that this, the war wasn't really about slavery, that uh, a reconstruction was an evil failure, that black people, enslaved people were actually happy to be slaves. Um, that, I mean, this, this monstrous lies that created a system of, of white supremacy. And in Alexandria, what I didn't realize is that it actually used to be part of the District of Columbia uh, because George Washington demanded that it be part of Alexandria when Hamilton, Madison, uh, uh, create, and Jefferson created the idea of having a capital. And it, the reason it left in 1847 was to protect the slave trade. Uh, in fact, Alexandria was only in the Confederacy for less than 12 hours before it was occupied by the United States Army. Uh, I never knew that. And then all those Confederate names, streets that were there, why were they there? They were named in the 1950s and 60s as a reaction to integration. So the more I learned about Alexander, and then the, the heroes that I should have had, Lee was my hero, but my real hero is Samuel Tucker. Oh my gosh, what an amazing man. He uh, grew up in the segregated Alexandria and then went to Howard, uh, they couldn't find a law school, so we just took the exam and then started the first sit-in movement in Alexandria at the public library in the 1930s. Served honorably uh, in Italy as an officer in a, in a segregated black regiment and then was one of the people that did Brown versus the Board of Education. I never heard of Samuel Tucker. He should have been my hero. Then you move with your, your family down to Georgia. Georgia. Yep. Walton County, Georgia. Your father um, became the headmaster of a small private school there yes and so you and you were a student there i graduated from high school there talk about walton county georgia as the, the history that you thought you knew yeah i thought i knew it i had no idea so i moved there uh in the summer in the 1970s and i thought i knew it but i went to a segregated academy a seggy academy created that, that that sprouted up like mushrooms in 1969 when they finally enforced integration i went to one of those seg academies it was all, sole purpose to ensure white kids didn't go to school with black kids that's number one the second was i never knew about the tortured racial history of monroe never heard about it there is actually an 800 page book about the history of of walton county in monroe 
that doesn't mention anything about that. Well, in Northern Virginia, there were 11 lynchings. In Walton County, there were nine. But the last mass lynching in American history was in 1946. I mean, this was 30 years after uh, uh, I moved there, and I'd never heard anything about it. No markers, nothing. Instead, there was a Confederate monument outside the courthouse. In, the, at this, in this, uh, this lynching, four uh, black uh, people were, were trapped, ambushed, slaughtered, uh, and uh, and they were never, no one was ever indicted. No one was ever found for that crime. One of them was a veteran. And I kept finding instances of veterans, black veterans being lynched in uniform. It just, it just, uh, the, the moral degradation, the moral horror of that is just almost unspeakable. You wrote early on in the book, the lies of the lost cause infused every aspect of my life, dot, dot, dot. And that pisses me off. It pisses me off, Jonathan, because I was infected with these racist lies. And I'm so mad at myself and my own obtuseness for not finding it sooner. I'm upset because it created a society based on white supremacy, which is morally wrong. And it's not just morally wrong. Of course, it's economically stupid. So I was so upset that when I found this, and that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it now, is that I have to tell the world about this because this myth of the lost cause is still infecting our nation. It's in our DNA. You know, racism is the virus in the American dirt. It's our eternal pandemic. And until we are honest about it, until we put the sunlight of history upon it, we are never going to get over this. And we're going to talk more more about that. But I want to keep going because I want people to understand your history, your background, so sure. that, the, that the passion that comes through really rings true for folks. So now you go to college and you go, like, you go to Washington and Lee. I go to Washington Lee, Jonathan, to be an educated Virginia gentleman. Right. To be a good, upstanding, white, Southern Christian gentleman, Virginian. White is everywhere in this. Everything I say, you got to put white before it. Right. And so Washington is for George Washington. Right. Lee is for Robert E. Lee. In talking about Washington and Lee and briefly the history, please talk about the the shrine. This is the centerpiece of the university. And if you look go inside it, it looks like an actual chapel, like an like a Christian church, except there's no Christian iconography in there. And and, and it, what's in there instead is a, it's a shrine to Robert E. Lee. So um, you know, you go up on the on the on the the stage. There's no pulpit. There's no place where it lists hymnals. Um, no cross. Instead, there is an apse, the sanctuary, which is the holy of holies, and you know where where Christians uh, put uh, at the altar, and on the altar usually goes the Eucharist. I, I was Episcopalian acolyte. I know I know my way around a, a church, and 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 so, um, but lying on that altar is not nothing. It's Robert E. Lee. Uh, the recumbent Lee, he's lying down on the battlefield in Confederate uniform with his hand over his heart and his left hand on the scabbard of his sword, ready to rise up for the people of the of the South. It's in white marble the, for the purity. That's the word that they would use, the purity of, uh, of, to fight for his social system of slavery. And so that is a it is a monument. Downstairs is is like a. It's a reliquary. Um, his office never been touched since the day he died 160 years ago. His horse, Traveler, buried right outside there. Um, and they, uh, people come and put pennies on his grave, always face down, so that the hated Lincoln's face is not visible to Robert E. Lee and so that Lincoln will have to 
kiss Traveler Lee's horse. We'll have to kiss Traveler's I don't remember my graduation, but for my for my uh, actual um, commission, I go into Lee Chapel and I, I go up on stage. I still have a picture of me uh, right next to the picture of Robert E. Lee in Confederate uniform. I'm in my green uniform about to be commissioned. He's looking resplendent. You know, the lights on him like a halo. You can almost hear the the angels singing ah, as it's looking at him. And then I go get my commission and, and I get my commission next to this recumbent statue surrounded by Confederate flags. I get my U.S. Army commission surrounded by Confederate flags. I go back, sit in the aisle, raise my right hand, and take the oath of office to, to be in the United States Army. It's the same oath that everyone in the federal government takes. And when I take it, I say I will support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That, that oath was written in 1862. It's an anti-Confederate oath. When it says no purpose of evasion, anti-Confederate. So I took the oath to support the United States Constitution surrounded by enemy flags, Confederate flags. Truly, truly incredible. So now fast forward, you go into the army, you serve all over the place. There are bases named after Confederate soldiers, people who fought against this, fought against this country. You go through the book and you talk about each base and Okay, so Fort Hood, here's who, here's who this Hood person is. Uh, here's who all these people are. And it truly is incredible to learn the history. Um, I wanna fast forward because I really wanna get into now the myth of the lost cause. What is it? Who perpetuated it? And why does it still hold so much power, Ty? stories are more important and stronger than history. Stories are more important than facts. Culture trumps facts and history every time. And that's what I'm trying to do is to tell a different story. But the lost cause myth is imagine that the South went, the white South went to war to protect and expand slavery, to create a system that they were going to take into Latin America, the Caribbean, California, Mexico. And, and they, not only did they, they not win, they lost this slave system. The last thing they wanted was racial equality. And that's what they got with the 13th Amendment that, that created, um, that ended slavery, the 14th Amendment, the most important amendment, which created equal rights, the 15th Amendment that uh, um, uh, gave voting power. And so that they're completely lost. And so before the smoke clears on the battlefield, they have to come up with a new narrative to do this. And this new narrative is, one, the, the war wasn't about slavery. Well, that's just bull hockey. Um, the war was totally fought for slavery. Two, that enslaved people were happy in their condition. That's, a, that's just a horrific thing to say. Terrible. Three, the South um, could never have won this because the North had more manpower and materiel. Well, as a military guy, no. All they had to do was not lose. Uh, fourth, that Ulysses S. Grant was a butcher and a drunk. No, finest soldier to ever wear U.S. Army blue. Reconstruction was a failure uh, because black people weren't ready to, to, for the vote. Well, this is another monstrous lie. 2,000 black men served. And at the top of the lost pause, it lost cause is the Christ figure, Lee. And this, this but, but what we got to understand about this lost cause is it was the pillar along with, along with uh, um, uh, black disenfranchisement, lynching, Confederate monuments. Um, uh, this is the, the spillers of a white supremacist society that was created in the South to keep white people in political power at the expense of black people. I mean, that's just a, a, a tour de force explanation. And we've had conversations on this podcast about the myth of the lost cause um, with Mitch Landrew, 
uh, the former mayor uh, of New Orleans. Sure. Um, one of the things you also talk about here uh, in your book is that the myth, the, the myth of the lost cause also sort of perpetuates itself because of the way, because of the language that we, that we use. Um, one way is, so you say that the word plantation riles you. You're right, the word plantation riles me. What should a plantation be called, Ty? Plantation makes you think of, of Tara and of Scarlett O'Hara and the wind whispering through the Spanish moss as as she as Tara says, I mean, as Scarlett says, fiddle dee dee. They should be called enslaved labor farms because a, a plantation is a site of mass atrocities. It should be more comparable to Dachau than it is to Disneyland. And and because that's what I when I go visit one of those, I think about rape. Remember that that uh, as as uh, uh, the famous poet, I can't remember her name now, said that enslaved people have rape. She had rape colored skin. Sexual violence against enslaved women was ubiquitous. Um, and so these are these places are horrible and they rape, torture and the worst selling families apart for profit. I go on there and I hear the screams of of human beings being tortured. So no, no plantation for me in slave labor farm. You write about going to a wedding that was held at a quote unquote plantation that had been completely scrubbed of at least visible um, slave slaveholding past. Literally whitewashed. And there was nothing there except in my own mind that what what would have except in my own mind it was the screams it was the horror it was the rape it was the torture but everything else was was free. there's only one of these so-called plantations that does an honest job it's the Whitney plantation in Louisiana where the focus is on the majority of people that were there which were the enslaved and that's another word don't call them slaves call them enslaved it's not they don't they're not slaves for somebody is forcing them to be enslaved so i think the language that we use is really important like I call the South. The South is, was a racial police state when I was born. Um, I don't call Lee a general. He should be called a colonel. That was the last time he served honorably in the Army. So, yeah, I, I, I think that the language that we use has to change if we're going to see the monstrosity of, of the enslaved era. You write towards the end of the book, and this also plays into the, the myth of the lost cause. You write, once I accepted that simple fact, the enslaved were people who deserved the same rights as any American, my whole thought process changed. I grew up thinking that before 1861, slaves were somehow not quite as human as white Southerners, that the enslaved only became real people after 1865. It pains me to write that I believed something so grotesque and immoral, but it's worse to lie. That was the hardest sentence to write, write in the entire book because I'm, I, again, I'm, I feel so, uh, I, I mean, I get almost teary when I think about that because it was so monstrous to think that the enslaved weren't, somehow weren't people. That's just not true. And that's part of what we as white Southerners grow up with is that this was the right way. It wasn't all bad. It was all bad. It was deeply evil. And it is grotesque and immoral that I thought that. And anybody who thinks that there is any positive, so you often hear, oh, he was a good slave owner. Well, no, 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 not, not good. If you're a slave owner, that's bad, morally repugnant. So then what do you think, um, because then it gets, it gets complicated with Robert E. Lee, as you write in the book, you show how he is just a truly horrible, horrible person. No oh. redeeming value whatsoever. But then when you get to slave owners like George Washington, 
Thomas Jefferson, um, who played enormous roles in creating this country that it remains a beacon of hope and freedom around the world, and yet they own slaves. How do we square that circle? Is it possible to revere someone so complicated or people so complicated? For me, the bumper sticker for Lee is he committed treason to preserve slavery. So he was trying to create a, a country based on human enslavement. That was the only difference between the two. Washington was, that was not his primary goal, but he was an enslaver. So I think we have to take people, we have to, nobody gets a buy from history. And so we have to take Washington to task when he was doing that. And Jefferson, who raped, you know, underage enslaved girls, definitely, I mean, even worse. Um, but, but Washington also tried to figure out ways to keep his enslaved people when he was at the Philadelphia, at the, at the constitutional convention. So yeah, we've got to be more open and honest about this. The thing is that we can handle this. We can find out that our, that our founding fathers did great things and did horrible things. But the idea that those people who fought for the Confederacy, they did horrible things for horrible reasons to create a horrible country. So I do think that there's a difference, but we must be honest about our past. And it's not going to it's going to make us stronger, not weaker. You write about how Beauregard brought Eugene and Mary with him to New York, but he probably left Sally Harden, another enslaved servant back in Louisiana. Harden had recently given birth to Beauregard's daughter, Susan. Enslaved women had no legal right to refuse sex with a slave owner ever. We have a word for sex without consent, rape. You go on to write, and I've, I don't have it noted here, but you talk about the fact about how evil it is, a system where men can rape, the ensla rape enslaved women, have them give birth to their children, and then keep those children enslaved, and then even sell them. I did my best to, to look at what it was like for enslaved people, but I wanted to think about what was it like for the slavers and the enslavers. And I just thought about that. I'm of an age, you know, I have two, uh, two boys who are married and they're thinking about having kids. But I just thought about the fact that my grandkids, that I would sell them uh, further south to these horrible conditions. I would not love my own grandkids. I would not love my own children, my nieces, my nephews. And it just, the stench of immorality, the, the, the level of evil that would have to happen for you to sell your own blood, your own children is just, uh, it's a, it, it's just, it's my, it monstrous is the word I keep coming back to. I should figure out something else to say about it, but it's just so awful to think that they would sell their own children to sell their own grandchildren. Oh, God, can you imagine that? We can't imagine what that's like. And we have given this idea of slavery a pass from our moral consciousness and where it should be in our frontal lobe. It should be right there in front of us. And one of the things we do to not talk about slavery or talk about the war that was fought to end it is that we give the civil, not we, they give the civil war different names. The war right. of Northern aggression the war between the states. I got a little confused. The, the war of the rebellion, is that 
Is that the good way of talking? That's a good way. So, in fact, in in the 19th century, that was the official name of the war in the United States. So the great monument we have at West Point, Battle Monument, says this is fought the, 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 is to those who died in the War of the Rebellion. Because by saying rebellion, they don't get the status of being states. They're insurrectionists. They're seditionists. They're traitors. If you say war between the states, as what Jefferson Davis said, it's like France and Germany fighting. No, this is an insurrectionist force that would not accept the results of a democratic election and therefore chose armed rebellion instead. When you say, um, uh, and you could also say what Frederick Douglass said, which I loved, which is the slaveholders rebellion. I could go by that. Civil War is okay. The Southerners hated that. Uh, but I love War of the Rebellion. That, to me, it gets to the heart of it. And, and that's where the, the purpose of that war by 1863 is to free a race and weld a nation. And that's what the United States Army did, and, and including um, nearly 180,000 black soldiers whose story, until really until the movie Glory, was just completely forgotten. And that war was won by 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 black soldiers and immigrant soldiers fighting uh, in the blue uniform. And this is another thing. I don't use the term Union Army as though it fought only one war in its history. It's the United States Army, the same army I fought, the same blue uniform that George Washington picked, that Grant wore, that I wore for 36 years. So, yeah, it's the United States Army that whooped insurrectionist ass and saved the United States of America. And yet... At the United States Military Academy at West Point, there's Lee everything all over the campus. It wasn't like that in the, you know, way back when. It started sort of creeping up and creeping in uh, to the spaces there at West Point. How did that happen? Well, so this is really where I had my epiphany. And I'm going by, um, by the, our barracks are named after our greatest heroes. So I'm, I go by Eisenhower Barracks, World War II, Pershing, World War I, Grant, Civil War. And I get to Lee Barracks. And I look at it and I go, you know, wait a minute. I'm living on Lee Road by Lee Gate in Lee Housing Area on West Point. I go and see this Lee Barracks. And I go, why are all these things named after Lee? I race around campus and I find more than a dozen things named after Lee. I say, what? I understood Washington and Lee. Why in the hell are there this many things at West Point? Nobody could tell me. So I went into the archives as a good historian. And what I found was in the 19th century, West Point was an anti-Confederate monument. No Confederates in our cemetery, none on our monument, none in our memorial hall. So when did they come? The first thing of named after Lee is the 1930s. 1930s? What in the world? Well, it turns out that's when the first black cadet comes back in the 20th century. The famous Benjamin O. Davis Jr., the Tuskegee Airman, leader of the Red Tails. And, and he comes back in the 1930s. The next one is the 1950s when the Army is fighting against integration, when, when Truman orders the integration in Executive Order 9981, and the Army's slow rolling it. Another Confederate thing that 1970 when minority admission starts, we go from a handful of black cadets to scores of black cadets. So Confederate memorialization at West Point, scratch it, and it's a reaction to integration. And all Confederate monuments are either to support white supremacy or, in another uh, side of the coin, to, um, to uh, uh, fight against integration. You sort of did that in a nutshell, just showing over and over and over again sort of the action and reaction. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of politics at play here where you had presidents getting involved. Uh, only because they're looking out for their own electoral futures, trying to win over, win over Southern votes. 
Right. Well, because remember, the South is a racial police state. The only way that black people can go into the courthouse is as defendants or custodians. And so by the time the 20th century rolls around, uh, the, the black people have been completely disenfranchised in the South. And despite the fact that they're close or more than 50 percent in some southern states, um, they have been completely excluded from the political process reinforced by violence and that means that the 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 white um senators and congressmen stay on these committees for years they are the dominant political force and so they have to be appeased to get anything passed so that's why social security doesn't include domestics and farm workers it's to purposefully exclude black people in fact i read the testimony of howard w smith uh congressman from alexandria who said we can't give black people social security because if one 65 year old black man has uh the uh has a, has a pension nobody else in the family will work so you just keep finding these instances of just grotesque racism um, that cause much of where we are now. I mean, why why does a great migration occur uh, and all the black people leave the South? It's because of the economic and violence, uh, economic lack of economic opportunities, education, and and lynching that forced people to leave. So this is who our history is, and we I mean, we've got to study this so we don't keep doing it. In fact, you give a great nutshell uh, uh, of the history. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you where because you need to read the book. Don't skip ahead. Um, <laughs> but you write, the Confederate States of America and those who fought for it refused to accept the results of a Democratic election in 1860. They rebelled against the United States of America to set up a new country founded on the principle of white supremacy to protect and expand the institution of slavery forever. Then, when white Southerners lost, Lee and those who followed him created new ways to install racial control. Now that we can acknowledge the facts, our conversation can be grounded in reality, not myth and not ideology. An important point to remember is that we don't own the actions of people who lived in the 1860s or the 1930s, but we do have a responsibility to acknowledge the past, to acknowledge the facts. The past does not have to control us, especially if we understand it. Ty, uh, that first part of that, that history that I read, particularly the part where the, the Confederate States of America and those who fought for it refused to accept the results of a democratic election in 1860. Throughout this book, I have seen parallels between then and now where we're dealing with um, a political party that is refusing to accept the democratic election of 2020. Do you see those parallels? And if so, how concerned are you about what that portends for the future? Well, certainly on January 6th, like almost every American, I was shocked. I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised. I mean, I, I saw there are two things I saw. One is the, the Confederate flag in there, which I don't like to call the Confederate flag. I like to call it the flag of treason. I saw the flag of treason going in there, which was just just monstrous. The second thing I saw was that um, that the gallows with the, the hangman's knot. And I thought, oh, my God, I read about this. This is a lynch mob. I've seen these before. I mean, I haven't seen it, but I've read about these. I've studied them. This is an old-fashioned lynch mob incited by the president to go and kill Mike Pence, AOC, Nancy Pelosi. I mean, thank God nobody was found because that's what this would have been. 
Uh, and to see that in that in that house, in the people's house, in the house I love that I that I spent a majority of my life trying to defend just just was a was a terrible, a terrible sin on the country to see that. So, I mean, I think that this idea of democracy, the idea of equality, the idea of justice, we have to keep we have to fight for because there's no way to have reconciliation without accountability and justice first. That's what we've got to have. And and so I hope that they come up with some sort of 9-11 commission to go look at these things, to look at it. And, and, and I hope that we have a national commission that will look at, 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 at our racial past to try to become better. I mean, we can do it. You know, I said uh, I said previously, we Americans aren't made out of cotton candy. You know, we can handle the truth, but we have to ensure that we are studying this so that that, that so that, that so that we don't have that happen. But at least. Nobody's talking about secession. I don't think because the U.S. Army and the president, nobody's going to allow secession. I, I certainly hope. <laughs> Had you said this before the November election, I would have been like, Ty, I don't know. You might be a little hopeful there. I know. Given the way, th- given the way things turned out after the election and certainly um, after the insurrection and the successful inauguration, we could breathe a sigh of relief that at least for now, things are fine. But I do wonder, how concerned are you that we're not out of the woods, that we're not out of danger? No, we're not, because, I mean, we have we have to accept the results of democratic elections. I mean, that that's that's a rule of law. We are based on the rule of law. And the thing that the Confederates did is they did not accept the rule of law. They would not accept the results of a democratic election. And that is the death knell of democracy. If you don't accept that I mean, one of the things that Washington did give us um, was when he was commanding general of the Continental Army, he gave up command. One of the only people in, the, in that era, in the 18th century, that gave up the power to give it to Continental Congress. And then when he was president, he gave it up again. And we're the only country that's never had a military coup or one of the very few. Maybe there's another one. One of the very few that's never had a military coup. I'm as a soldier. I'm extraordinarily proud of that role that we've never had that. But it does take work to ensure that we have a system that will accept the results of democratic elections and has democratic elections. But I do believe in my country. I believe in this, that 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 we can do this. But I do think that the foundation is understanding where we've been on this, because because unless good people fight hard um, legally through the process, then then you're right. We don't know what's going to happen. And and this historian will tell you, man, you cannot predict the future. You retired from West Point and from everything so you could write this book. I could not write this on active duty, particularly under the Trump administration, because it was too hot for them. I love the Army. I love West Point. And it was too hot for them to handle at the time. Remember, in 2015, the Army put out this mamby-pamby excuse about, you know, we're, this isn't about uh, people, who, about the names of the bases. This isn't about people who, uh, about, the, about the cause. It's about the people. Well, the people are terrible. So the Army and, and West Point just did not want to deal with this. I knew that. And, and the thing about being in the military is you don't have the First Amendment. And now I do. It's awesome. I'm really enjoying it. Really, really enjoying the ability to say these things and talk about it and, uh, and try to convince some people, particularly people who look like me, middle-aged white guys, that, that, that there's another way of looking at this that will make us a stronger nation, a better nation. What's been the reaction um, within the military to your book, uh, what you've been what you've been saying? 
overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the, the, the leaders I've talked to in the Army, the ones I've talked to, um, have been, they, they are, they're so excited. I mean, excited is probably the wrong word, but, but they, they want to, 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 to work on this. They want a better Army, and a better Army um, uh, doesn't, like at West Point, have things named after Lee. The, at the West Point, I know that they, are, they, they, are, they like what I'm saying, too. They want to know the history, and they want me to help convince people about it. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm bullish about the Army. You remember, the Army is the most diverse organization um, in the country. And there are there are bases in the army that are majority uh, black troops that are a minority white. And so, you know, we 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 have to get after this in the army. And, and listen, we have problems with it. It's not as though we're perfect. We represent America and America has problems with race. It's our you know, it's our original problem. It's never I mean, I may hope maybe it'll go away. It's certainly nowhere close to going away now. But the army is working on it. Uh, but man, it has more work to do. Do you know Secretary Austin? I have met Secretary Austin uh, once or twice, a uh, huge fan of his. And, you know, when, when people were arguing that we shouldn't have a, sec def, a Secretary of Defense who was a recently retired uh, Army officer, I said, hey, Lee, you don't know Secretary Austin. I mean, he's getting after it. He, he did a, a stand down for extrem extremism. He has started the first uh, Office of Diversity for, for the Pentagon. I mean, he is a fantastic leader. I'd share Foxhole with him. He is a, he is a great leader. We're going to have to end the conversation. Uh, otherwise, we'll be here for like three hours because <laughs> it just there's so much here to talk about. But I want to end by having you talk about something you did that the old version of you, young Ty Sigley, would have been appalled. And that was when you went back to your alma mater, to Washington and Lee, and you gave a speech, which was basically the template for your book, for this yeah. book. You went to, well, tell the story. Well, it's the shrine of the lost cause. Remember, this is where Lee is, I was standing on top of his grave. Um, behind me was this white altar statue of him. One side is, is Lee in Confederate gray. The other side is Washington. Um, and there at my alma mater, and again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not some famous person at all. I told my alma mater that Lee chose treason to preserve slavery. And that's my bumper sticker, treason for slavery. And I went through, he, he, he violated the constitution, article three, section three, which says levying war against the United States is treason. And why did he do this? Because he was the largest holder of enslaved people in the army. By the way, he didn't have to do it. There were eight U S army colonels for Virginia. Seven of them remain loyal treason for slavery. And I, I had to say my truth. I mean, you knew I had to say my truth, but, but at the end of that, of calling Leah treater for slavery to telling my school to end its, its, its romance with the lost cause to do better. I thought, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen. And what happened is that overwhelmingly white audience stood up and gave me a standing ovation. And I, you know, and I basked in the warm glow of acceptance at my alma mater, of course, you know, one speech doesn't change an institution nor does one book, nor does one uh, podcast. But it is it did give me the hope that I could write a book that would be accepted by white Southerners uh, because of the, 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 the fantastic reception I got at, at, at Washington and Lee. Well, there is one person who had a major impact, who in some ways uh, changed history a little bit. And that is the, the woman who then became your wife because she, I think it was on your first date or among your first dates. Yes. Where she, either she said this or you described yourself this way as not just Southern, 
aggressively Southern. My wife, Sherry, is the hero of this book. Uh, she's the most honest person I've ever met. And it took her decades, but she got me there, or at least a little bit more there, too. And she is. She's the one that looked at me like, Are, you're Southern, man. Why is this so important to you? And she's also the one that went into Lee Chapel and said she's raised a Catholic and said, oh, my God, Lee is the altar. Get me out of here. Uh, and she's also the one that supported it. She's the one that told me that, Ty, if you're going to change people's minds, you have to tell your own story. She understood as I said earlier, stories are more important than history. And by telling my own story, by making myself vulnerable, by telling people that I had, I was a racist. I was, um, that by saying that story, that maybe I'll be able to convince more people, um, that this lost cause myth, that this Lee idolatry, that the Confederates weren't just wrong, they were morally bankrupt and that we must turn away from them and turn to the better parts of who the United States of America is. So yeah, my wife is the hero of this book. Um, I would not have been able to write it without her love and her guidance. And Ty, just personally, it is a, it, it is incredible for anybody to be raised with one worldview and then discover you see like a little crack in that worldview and you start picking at it and then the whole thing comes crashing down. The, the impact that has certainly emotionally uh, on a person when that happens is pretty incredible. How has it been for you to just have, literally have your entire life change? It's way better. <laughs> it's way better, John, because, you know, I was once you see that the lie is there, it's like I can't live that lie anymore. I cannot do it. It's too much. It's too wrong. And so once I started it and the first time I gave a talk on it, I think that was the toughest part. I mean, I realized I was I, that this was wrong and I was going full tilt, but I didn't tell anybody about my own story. But when I told my own story, I, 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 now I can't stop because, you know, the converts have the greatest zeal and I'm a convert to this, but, uh, but it's a cause that it's both right and righteous. So, and the other part is I'd look at myself and say, listen, I'm a white dude who had all the privileges that, uh, that went with a great education, a great army career, a great family, um, I'm not like it was like living under the enslaved era or Jim Crow or or it or, you know, I'm not living in a way that that is any way threatening to me, which so many other people are. So um, I feel lucky to be who I am. And, and I'm also uh, lucky to be an American where we can say these things and maybe maybe we can just get a little bit better. Hi, Sigily author of Robert E. Lee and me, a Southerner's reckoning with the myth of the lost cause former head of the history department at West Point, first professor emeritus of history at West Point. Thank you for coming to the podcast. And more importantly, thank you. Thank you so much for this book. Oh, Jonathan, it's been my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on here. I enjoyed our talk completely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.